Welcome to the Way Back Then podcast. The podcast is produced by myself, Tony Michaelidis, a.k.a. Tony the Greek, and Ritman Media. Hope you enjoy it. When the decision was made to produce this podcast, I thought along with the archive interviews, wouldn't it be great to have some industry veterans telling their stories and share some of their experiences through a long time in a great period in the music industry. Personally, I found that these stories would be both entertaining, educational and inspirational and appeal to musicians and fans alike. Today's guest is Paul Conroy, a gent I've known since 1978 when I worked with him at Stiff Records. He'll tell you chronologically his guide through his career. Paul ran Virgin Records through the 90s, making them the most successful record label around. So, without further ado, we'll hand it over to Paul Conroy to tell you his story and his stories on the way back then. Well, my name is Paul Conroy, um, and yes, I started in showbiz way back in about 1970. Um, It all started for me when I went to Yule Tech in Surrey to do my A-levels, and I was virtually thrown out of my school because I didn't get into the sixth form, so they didn't really want me back for the to, to do them in, in those days. And when I went to Yule Tech, I got involved as the social secretary, which was then the guy who used to put on the dances at the college. And when I first got there, it was like people like Alan Elston's jazz band. Um, but I was lucky. I became the social sec. I don't think anybody else wanted the job from the students' union. And um, my first act that I, that I brought to the college was The Nice with Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera. Uh, the second gig was this band called, well, we went for the New Yardbirds. And um, uh, the day before they would arrive, the Friday before I was rung, and so they changed their name to Led Zeppelin. So <laughs> I, I had Led Zeppelin for £175 at Yule. Nick Page came down because actually he'd gone to school in Yule. His mother was a dental technician, in um, a dental receptionist in Yule. And his first band that he played in after he'd been to Yule Castle School was um, a sort of a a skiffle group with Jeff Beck. Um, So I can remember him sitting in the dressing room reading his Asimov novel. Anyway, enough of that. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I got... Um, asked to become an agent with a a company called Terry King Associates. And I started with them after a brief stint of teachers training college in 1970. And that was my first intro into into the music business. So I was lucky because I have, over my years, I've been an agent, a manager, and a record company executive. So I've seen all sides of... uh, working with musicians and artists, I suppose. I started as an agent and I got to the gig on the first day, uh, the grand summer, I was getting 17 pounds a week in those days. And I was booking out the fortunes, the foundations. And the band that really brought me into the music business was uh, Caravan, who I loved and I became very friendly with. And I wanted to make them, make them stars. Um, and um, I worked with 
with them. And also there was this band called Genesis, who I was the agent for, Van Graaff Generator and Lindisfarne. So I went from Terry King Associates, where I worked for a couple of years, to work with Charisma and Charisma Records. Tony Stratton-Smith asked me to set up um, an agency, um, on which we call Charisma Artists, and we took all the, the acts from uh, Terry King, and um, myself and a young man called Nigel Kerr, um, we, we ran Charisma Artists. And it was there... Um, and, and around that time where I got very friendly with Genesis as well, I used to tour Europe with them and with Van der Graaff Generator. And um, I built Linda's Farm from 15 pounds a night and supporting at the marquee to them. To the, when I'd left the agency, they were, they were sort of very high up on the bill at the Crystal Palace Bowl and getting 30,000 pounds, which was a lot of money in those days. Um, from Charisma Artists, um, I, I, I got involved with a number of acts, uh, starting with Chili Willy and Red Hot Peppers. And um, it was there I met a, a guy called Andrew Jakeman, Jake Riviera. And I then got involved with Kilburn and the High Roads. And they came on the agency roster with, with Chili Willy. And I suppose I got involved with most of the, what in those days were called pub rock acts. And I, um, uh, worked with them and then I uh, one day I was invited to go down to the Kensington pub in, in Kensington uh, to see this band called the Curls and Flyers. I then went on to manage them. Um, we had a number of reasonable size hits. We toured Europe with the Flying Burrito Brothers and we did a two-hour documentary on BBC Two which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I remember putting myself in a washing machine, which anybody knows anything about the girls and flies, at Royal Holloway College, having just come off stage dressed in Baco foil and things. And that was my last night with the girls. And I just thought, I can't do any more. And um, I got in this spin dryer at the college, went home, and that was it. And then really? a few days later, I get a call from Jake. And... Jake told me he was working with Dave Robinson. They just started Stiff Records. And they wanted someone, um, uh, I think the word was M-U-G, mug. No, it was someone <laughs> who, uh, to come in and be the general manager of Stiff, to basically organize it uh, within the chaos that Dave and Jake were going to create. They put out a couple of singles by that point. I knew all the artists because I knew Nick Lowe and I knew the Dams and I knew various people. No, I always had a lot of respect for Jake because uh, I loved his marketing skills um, and him and I worked really well together. We promoted gigs in London as well as having a lot of fun with Chili Willy when he was managing them. Anyway, um, it was Dave Robinson I was a little bit more... Uh, uh, reticent about because Dave I'd known Dave for many years uh, when he was running the Hope and Anchor pub and um, I, th I always thought of Dave as more like a lovable rogue and uh, but it was Jake who brought me into Stiff that was the main reason and I had seven very happy years there I went from Stiff where I was general manager and by the time I had left we had massive success with with the injury and Elvis Costello and Madness and et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and uh, I went from stiff, I was offered a job um, working at Warner Brothers, WEA as it was then, as uh, marketing director. And I went to Warner Brothers and I worked with all the Warner's acts for probably another seven years as well before I was then poached and I went off to run, run Chrysalis Records. And then from Chrysalis Records, I, had, I was poached again to go and um, run Virgin, which I ran for 10 years. And luckily we had the most successful period Virgin's ever had. And we were the number one label in the UK for a considerable number of years. And uh, I suppose I will go to my grave with the man who introduced the Spice Girls to the company. So uh, they went on to sell millions of records as we all know. So uh, that's me. Oh, and I suppose, yeah, no, let's not forget. After I left um, Virgin, which would have been about 2002, um, I managed to sign, uh, I had my own little label, uh, which I had Christine McVie on the label, a little rapper called Verbalicious, and Chris Difford from Squeeze. And we also signed um, Gary Jules, and we had the single Mad World, which went number one all over the world. And um, we sold nearly a million copies in the UK alone. So. That was something we did on our, on our own, my wife and I. So, uh, and now I am semi-retired and uh, doing uh, recorded uh, interviews for um, uh, a certain ex-friend of mine from Manchester. <laughs> now in Florida. <laughs> yeah. you, I mean, you were talking then about adventures of music at the end, weren't you? Yeah. Um, so why after a number one record, do you, do you call it a day or did you continue for a good few years after that and then just think, well, it's not like it was? No, well, the problem with Adventure was uh, I, I, it took me a long time to come up with the name that I wanted, and I really liked Adventure, and which has now, funnily enough, been used all over the place and things. And uh, um, but I was, I suppose, in my late fifties by then, and people were not so willing to back people with record companies. If you, if you music publisher or something like that, they thought they had something tangible they could hang on to. I think there was an element of me as well not really have, wanting to invest the last amounts of my you know pension which I probably would have done if I'd been 27 and around the days of stiff records and um, I, people maybe didn't want to take a chance on me in those days. It's a shame because I think we could have been a label which could have been uh, a modern day uh, label which would have uh, encompassed a number of different musical styles which is what I always enjoyed labels because when I was at Virgin I could work with someone from Michael Nyman to uh, Dread Zone you know or Massive Attack to Meatloaf you know, I, I had I had it was a very wide roster with um, and that's what I've always liked I mean that's why I'd like going back in time, worked at Charisma as well, where I, I, you know, I, one of the greatest lunches I ever had was going out with Tony Stratton-Smith and Sir John Betjeman to try and get Sir John Betjeman to go out on the road with the Barrow Poets. I mean, it never happened, but uh, to go out with someone like that just for a lunch was for a young agent as I was in those days was remarkable. You're listening to the Way Back Then podcast with me, Tony Michaelidis. Each week, we talk to either a music industry insider or we delve back into the archives 
for an old, old, old interview from way back then. Today's guest is Paul Conroy, talking to you about his illustrious career in the music industry. So, let's pop back in and listen to Paul talk about that little-known combo called the Spice Girls. Yeah, that's a great great story. I mean, um, obviously coming from the school of pub rock and getting to know the artists and things, and then, you know, Elvis Costello right from the start and things like that. And then the Spice Girls and things. I mean, I suppose it really helps when you start your label, when you've kind of got that school of artist development behind you and you've kind of been there and done it. So you know how to nurture and guide um, the artist. Did you effectively manage and be the label with those people? Um, well, I think they always looked at me and my experience that I had working with different artists. I didn't manage at, at, at that time, but I, what, what, what was I at Virgin? I was the managing director, stroke president, and, um, you know, they all came to me with their sub stories. And, I mean, for me, it was Tony Gordon who managed, um, who managed George Michael came to me one day and said, as he did very often, he wanted to get his royalty check early so he would get his commission. And in best uh, practice, which is really what I picked up off Dave Robinson, I said, so, Tony, what's happening? I won't do my Dave Robinson accent, but I said, Tony, what's happening? You know, anything else out there? And he said, well, I've been approached to manage these girls um, and... Uh, I don't think I'm going to get them. I think they're really good, though. Uh, I think Simon Fuller's going to manage them. And they're called the Spice Girls. So I went up to Ashley Newton in the A&R department and said, do you know about these girls called the Spice Girls? Because I've just heard from Tony Gordon, they're really good. Should we get them in? And that's where the story started with the Spice Girls. And the rest is history. Um, and at the, at the point we got them in, they came and see Ashley and I. And they sort of performed, and Jerry sat on my lap, and <laughs> uh, and that was the end of that. Um, and I, having, oh, I was working with Ray Cooper as my right hand man, and I said to Ashley, "We should get Ray over for this." And Ray came over and saw, saw them perform as well, and uh, that's where we um, we had to do a dog and pony show to sign them, um, and we had to prove to Simon Fuller that we were going to be. Uh, Virgin was going to be a good enough label uh, to to break them in America because Simon's view was always to break them worldwide. And uh, that's the start of the story of the Spice Girls. Yeah, I mean, I suppose like you hope uh, you've signed something that's going to do well. But I mean, little did you know really what the kind of extent of something like that worldwide. I mean, it was just a phenomenon, wasn't it? Oh, it was, it was, I had, of all the acts I've worked with over the years, I'd never seen anything happen quite like this. And it was hard to explain to the girls themselves because um, they were brilliant. I don't think guys would have ever worked as hard as those girls did. They went all around the world. And when you needed them to go and do an MTV performance in Stockholm or something extra, you know, they would do it. And Simon was great as well. He was really... On it. I remember going to have a meeting with him. He was in hospital for some small operation and, and he got me and the girls in together to talk to them about, you know, doing, and they were absolutely knackered because they'd gone around the world um, uh, a number of times and it was just said, look, we just need a little bit more off you. We just need a little bit more off you to do this. And, you know, would you go and do that? Um, and so it was quite remarkable. I mean, the, 
Ashley Newton and I had discussed how we were going to start start them, and there was no real history of um, you know the, the one of those great unwritten laws of showbiz music, whatever you want to call it, was that girls don't you know girl groups don't really sell records, and uh, up until that point, there was probably an element of that if you took out the Supremes or Martha and the Vandellas, but they, you know it was like a pop girl group had never really sold records worldwide. And um, so it, Ashley and I wanted to start them abroad to get them, you know, credibility. And so at that time, Shampoo had been quite successful for EMI and they'd started them in Japan. And we thought, well, let's start them in Japan. And that's where really the Spice Girls started. We did a, we did the, put the single and, uh, we started it out in, you know, building them up via via Japan. And but when when we had the hit in England, and I've got to say, all three of us uh, who were running Virgin at the time were a little bit worried about Wannabe being the first single, um, because it was a playground chant. But the girls were were definitely convinced that was the one, and so we 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 obviously went with it, and. Um, Oh my God, I remember seeing them the first day they went off to do some local radio promo. They were going off to BBC Radio Oxford or something. And it was about, I came in at seven in the morning and they were all getting coffees from the canteen and going off on a minibus to, to, to go and uh, do this radio interview. And they were so excited because they were like a coiled spring. They'd been waiting for such a long time to, uh, to get out and promote and they were brilliant. I mean, I, you know, I've been lucky over the years. If I think of the artists that I've worked with, be it Phil Collins, be it Meatloaf, be it uh, the Spice Girls, be it, you know, all the best acts were those who were prepared to really, you know, go out and go beyond what was needed to promote their art, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I, like I say, working in the industry myself at that time and seeing it, I mean, I think another plus, and you mentioned that they, um, you know, how they went about things and they wanted that to come out, of the, out as a single. What about Simon Fuller and his input? Because Simon, well, uh, they probably didn't even realise at the time what they'd been able to land with management. Because, I mean, it, it doesn't come much better, does it? The guy's a genius. And he is a brilliant guy to work with because he listens um, and he delivers. And I think, you know, you, I, I, I kind of think you never have a great artist without a great manager. I mean, if you look at Michael Lippmann or Paul McGuinness and stuff, it's no secret that, that those acts like fulfill their potential because, you know, you have to be able to work with the record company executives. I think what I see from those times, Paul, is, is the advantage as well with the Spice Girls. You wouldn't call them a music act. They were full on entertainment, but yeah. they worked with music uh, people at the high end of the record companies. And I mean, you, Ray and Ashley, rather than with respect, going and working with some accountants and lawyers at some other label. So I think it was the perfect marriage, the Spice Girls. Yeah, no, I mean, Simon, I remember going out with my wife, with Simon uh, for dinner one night before, I think we just signed the girls and he said, well, well, let's go out to dinner to celebrate or whatever. And we sat with him and, he was listening to our ideas. We were listening to his. It was a great team that got the. The girls were very lucky because they got they got a uh, they got a team uh, who were really working to the, you know to their best. Um, and 
with Ray, he was a great marketeer. With Ashley, um, he, he helped really help them hone and make the records. And I was able to push the button and get, get everyone uh, clued up, not only in the UK, but around the world. So, um, but it was very, very exciting. But I did live, live for four to five years of getting up in the morning and getting all the, the, the national papers because it was like, oh, my God, what have they done now? Or what, what story have they got on them? And there was always something. I mean, it was, it was I mean, you know, it was the Beatles of the, of the time because the girl power and everything, the influence they had, it was, it was the time still of physical uh, releases. Uh, you know, so you'd put out 12 inch versions, you put out cassette versions, you do this, you do that. We knew, uh, you know, we would build up the radio and the video interest. We'd have smash hits behind us. It was, it was a very exciting time to be in, in a record company. And um, now a lot of these things are more hidden with social media and, and different types of trickery, I suppose. Did I say trickery? <laughs> yes. I don't think I did. Did you say trickery? Um, but, you know, that we knew how to work records. I mean, I can remember being away one Christmas on the beach somewhere, I'll say it's Antigua, and waiting for the charts to come through. And it was like, it was the time we got the, you know, three number, three Christmas number ones in a row. And it was like, I was walking up and down the beach, like, oh my God, will we get it? Will we get it? And uh, it was just brilliant. I mean, you, you walked with a real spring in your step. And it was nice to get uh, plaudits from people just to say, great job. And it was a great job. Simon, though, was, was the glue who kept it all together. And it was, it was a pleasure working with him. And I think the way he's, he guided Annie Lennox's career, uh, you know, without overselling her, and they made great videos and everything. Um, now, I think he's a, he's a very measured man. I mean, when Simon said to me, the girls were off and running, and he knew that they'd probably, um, you know, how long the career would last, they'd burn themselves out at some point. And I remember him bringing in a guy and, uh, you know, they, they, they did Cadbury's cream eggs and they did this and they did that. And he brought all this. And I thought, Simon, you're going to overkill it. You're going to overkill it. But he, what he did, he brought so much money in for the girls. I mean, the one story with the girls, which is, uh, was quite remarkable. I was going to work one day and I came around Shepherd's Bush Green. And there's a McDonald's on Shepherd's Bush Green. And, I, and this was before, long before we launched the girls. I think we just signed them and we were just getting started. And I saw on the front window of McDonald's and Shepherd's Bush Green, I saw this thing saying Spice Burger. And I thought, <laughs> the Lord has arrived. And I thought, so I rang up McDonald's and I said to them, I see you're launching this thing called Spice Burger. Well, we've got this group called the Spice Girl. And I went up to uh, McDonald's offices somewhere up in North London. And I remember walking in and this shag pile carpet and seeing all the pictures on the wall with the with the, uh, you know, best team leader of the month award and, you know, someone who sold more burgers than anyone else. And I went to see the marketing director and I told him the story about Spice Girls. And I told him what was happening. And I told him, I said, they're going to be enormous. You know, you know, maybe there's something we could do together. And he looked at me like I was a teddy boy. And um, 
sort of virtually showed me the door. So I thought, I thought, I wonder where that guy is now. Yeah. You know, because he missed such an opportunity. Um, but it was things like that. But, I, you know, over the years, my, my, my skills of anything has come from um, really working with groups on the road, um, listening to their, um, their moans and groans, uh, working, you know, with the likes of fly posters to make sure we got the best fly posters spots around London, um, marketing generally. Jake would always give me enormous grief if we didn't get the best page in the NME when we were taking an ad. He'd scream at me and, and whatever. Um, but I learned, learned it by the seat of my pants. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that that sort of, you know, you learn by your own mistakes as well. I made loads of mistakes. I made loads of mistakes. You know, I just think of the acts we could have signed at Stiff that we never signed. <laughs> and I remember uh, being in Dublin and, part, and not thinking that much of you too at one point. You've been listening to the Way Back Then podcast with me, Tony Michaelidis. On this week's show, we were talking to music executive Paul Conroy about his vast and plentiful career. And just to bring you up to date with Paul's recent activity, as in Wikipedia, I'll read this. Conroy now resides in Henley, Oxfordshire, and Gozo, that's in Malta. More recently, Paul has acted as a consultant for Universal Music on issues related to catalogue artists and the setting up of the website You Discover. And he's also consulted for leading advertising agencies in placement for music and various commercials. He's also involved in a possible Netflix series, I can't tell you much more about that, well, he'll act as executive producer. So that's it from today's podcast. You've been listening to The Way Back Then with me, Tony Michaelidis. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, and please follow the series if you enjoy it. Till next week, bye-bye.